title of the message this morning is Overcoming a Life of Sin. What comes to your mind when you think of the subject of sin? I wonder if we as God's children have the same opinion of sin that God has. I wonder if we as God's children think of the consequences of sin from the perspective of how it breaks the heart of God when we willfully engage in it. Maybe for too many children of God, they've grown numb to the idea that they may be even living in sin. And possibly they have come to the conclusion that they're not entrenched by sin or in sin. And if we are numb to the consequences of our sinfulness, and we don't view sinfulness from the perspective that it breaks God's heart, might it be either that we are not saved or we're unwilling to acknowledge that we're even living in the sin? I believe that God desires that we walk in righteousness and holiness, which requires us as his children to consider our actions, our reactions, in light of relationship with him. God desires for us as his children to walk in victory. The subject of overcoming sin has been on my mind for several weeks now, so today, I believe by the leading of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to address several things regarding the subject of overcoming sin in our lives as His children. So if you would, uh, bow with me in prayer as we look at the Word of God just in a moment here. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for the opportunity that we have to come before You. And God, we thank You so much for Your Word of uh, Lord, not just a word of instruction, but Lord, even, uh, Lord, as we read through all, how it teaches us how you want us to live, not just instructing us day by day, but also sharing with us the consequences of sin and consequences of choosing not to live for you. I ask God that you would speak to our hearts, and Lord, not only ours, but around the world as uh, churches in some parts of the world have already begun, and yet, in other parts of the world, we'll be hosting uh, services later. But Lord, wherever the Word of God is being put forth today, I ask God that your Holy Spirit would prepare hearts. And Lord, that you, it would accomplish your desire, your will, for your glory. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject of overcoming sin. I think for far too many of us, it's too cavalier. It's the idea that, well, you know, it's not as bad as some people. Maybe not, maybe not as good as others, but, you know, it is what it is. We're not perfect. There's only one perfect person. And we kind of just kind of give that, you know, that credit to Jesus Christ because he is perfect. He's without sin. He's the only one that was a perfect lamb. He's the only one that could be that sacrifice. And we kind of suffice to say, though, that's Jesus. That's not me. So, you know, it is what it is. I think we have to start getting ourselves back to the place where we view sin as God views sin. Whereas sin is a big deal. Yes, I realize that there are different levels of sin in the sense that different sins have different consequences. But sin is sin, and all sin breaks the heart of God. And I've said many times over the years that the only difference between your sin and my sin is that one sin might be a little bit more visible than the others. But after, after one, every once in a while we get the idea that when we read something in the newspaper or when we see something on TV, they're really bad sinners because they did X, Y, Z. It may have a different consequence, but folks, we have to remember that all sin, whether we think it's a big thing or a little thing, all sin breaks the heart of God, right? Because the sin means that we're missing the mark. It literally means that God says, 
this is a target that I want you to aim for. And you're shooting the arrows over here and over there and up there and down there. You're missing the mark. And of course, the mark is that we may never be perfect. The mark is that we want to be like Christ. And it doesn't matter if we're less of a sinner than someone else or if our sins are different than someone else's sin, the bottom line is our point of comparison is not other people. Our point of comparison is Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to remember. And that's what we have to think about when we're thinking about getting involved in sin. Are we willing to be like Christ in all areas of our life? And so we have to get rid of the cavalier idea of that, well, it's just a little thing. It's not really a big deal. Yes, it is, because it breaks the heart of God. And we've said many times, Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Proverbs 28 says, He that cover the matter shall not prosper. The bottom line is, our sin will affect our relationship with God in ways that you and I cannot even fathom at times. And God's Word also teaches us that we as men, I'm bringing this in there just for a moment as well, that we as men, when we don't honor our wives, our prayers will be what? Hindered. It's motivation to be like Christ. It's motivation for God to answer and work in our lives and answer our prayers. So sin is a big deal. Sin does break the heart of God. Sin separates fellowship with God, and it must be dealt with. In 1 John chapter 3, if you would turn your Bibles there, 1 John chapter 3, and I want to read verses 4 through 10, and it teaches us at least three key principles in this passage. There are other things there, but there are at least three things there that we have to consider. Chapter 3, beginning with verse 4, it says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So he says that those of us who commit sin, you're breaking the law. What law are we talking about? In reference to the idea that God wants us to live a holy, righteous life. And now you're breaking the law. But here's what he says here, verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin, and whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So the word manifest is an interesting word there. It has the idea that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become flesh for us, right? So he was manifested to mankind. He was made known to mankind. And for what reason? To take away our sins. Jesus Christ left the splendor of heaven to come down to earth that he might take away our sins. Now, lest you start getting ahead of us just for a moment, I want to bring us a little bit of a clarity thing here, principle here. This verse is not talking about that you'll never sin again in the rest of your life. I don't know but one person, and that's where we don't want to jump on it and be a, a justification for us to continue to say, well, I'm not Jesus, so I'm not perfect, so therefore, let's not make that assumption. It's true, but let's not go there. For us as God's children, God says, you should not have patterns of sin in your life. In other words, we ought to, even though we may sin from day to day, we're not continuing in that sin. That sin does not define us. It is not our reputation. It's not something that we never get over. 
In other words, there is not a sin that is consuming our lives that we are addicted to and therefore has become part of who we are and what makes us up. There are no patterns of sin because day to day, God has given us the ability to walk in victory, right? Would God ever tell us to do something and then never give us the ability to do it? I mean, wouldn't that be a narcissistic, crazy, ridiculous God who would do something like that? He says, be holy. <laughs> They're never going to do it, but I'm going to tell them. It's got to be fun watching this one out. No. He says, I want you to be holy, but I also know your sinfulness. But every day I'm going to strive to do what's right. Every day I'm going to try to push down sin and to be filled with the Spirit and to live a life of obedience and trust in God, right? So it's not the idea that I'm never going to sin, though that's my desire. But I'm not going to let patterns of sinfulness dictate who I am as a person. Those things have been put down. And God says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He has given you his Holy Spirit to give you the ability to overcome sin. Which begs the point that if we're not overcoming sin, there's another question we have to answer. But let's go on here. Verse 6. It says, whoever abides in him does not sin. So what's the key to overcoming sinfulness in our life as far as patterns of sinfulness in our life? To abide in Christ. I want you to think about this just for a moment. Strap your thinking caps on. Abiding in Christ, what does that look like for us? It may look differently for you versus you versus you versus you. It may look differently, but what does it mean to abide? It means to remain in. It means that I'm walking with Jesus Christ. I'm listening to what he has to say to me, and I'm talking back to him. We have a conversation. We have a relationship. We have fellowship together. And I have to wonder sometimes that when we're involved in the sins of this life, and we're giving into them daily, and they become patterns in our lives that we hold on to, as Psalm 66, 18 says, regarding them, I know they're there, but I choose not to deal with them. When I choose to do that, I have to ask a question. Am I abiding in Christ? I think if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is no. You see, you can't abide in Christ and choose to live a life of pleasing Him, and at the same time, live a life of pleasing me. They're incompatible with each other. One of them is going to win out. I read an illustration years ago about two dogs. In fact, the idea of two wolves that were about ready to fight each other. One was white, representing the Holy Spirit, and one was black, representing the flesh and the devil. It both considered equal, though we know they're not equal according to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is stronger, right? But... Illustrated purposes, both of them being equal, which one's going to win that fight? The one that is stronger. The one that we feed. The one that we take care of. If we feed the flesh, the flesh is going to win out. If we flee, feed, the, feed the spirit, the spirit will win out. But you can't feed them both at the same time. You have to make a choice. And the reality is, if we feed the flesh, it will win. And sinfulness will dominate our lives. You feed the Spirit, abide in Him, the Spirit will win out. Going on here in verse 7, it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, for the purpose of the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So now the second time in the same passage, he says that Jesus was manifested, Jesus became flesh, Jesus came to this earth that he might destroy the works of sin. 
That's why he came. Why? Because he doesn't want us to live in that lifestyle. Verse 8 says, He who sins is of the devil. Uh, going on in verse 9, it says, For whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So we see three principles, at least from this passage. Number one, Jesus Christ appeared to take away our sins. What does that mean? It means that he does not want us to live a life of sinfulness. And so when we have the idea in our lives that sin is not a big deal, we are deceiving ourselves, and we're, making, we're basically putting our fists in the, in, in the face of God and saying, I don't care why you came, I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to choose to live in sinfulness. The very thing that he came to destroy. And number two, it says, if you are abiding in him, you'll not keep sinning. So if we're as a patterns of sinfulness in my life, are we taking the time to say, God, forgive me of my sin and be filled with the Spirit. And God, I want to spend time with you. I want to fellowship with you. I want to read your word. I want to communicate with you. I want a relationship with you. Abiding in Him so that we can overcome the pattern of sinfulness in our life. And then number three, a third principle that we see in this passage is, is whether or not we keep sinning gives evidence or proof of whether or not we really know Him. Because according to verses 8-10, eight, eight through 10, a true child of God does not maintain a pattern of sinfulness in his life. So, let's all be honest with ourselves this morning. Are we understanding why Jesus Christ came to this earth? It wasn't just for salvation. He came to seek and to save those who are lost, yes. But he also came to allow us to have victory in this life that we're living. Are you walking in victory? Are you seeing God give you the power to overcome? God's Word is telling us a very, very clearly that our actions will tell the tale. If you would take your Bibles and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 just for a moment. Just back a few pages. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read verses 5 through 8. It's an interesting thing here. In verse 5 it says, and you, have, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom, he, whom the Lord loves, he chases, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a, uh, is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which, which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So what's it tell us? If we are living in sin and we are truly God's children, He's going to what? He's going to rebuke us. He's going to chasten us. He's going to convict us through the help of the Holy Spirit that indwells us, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. If we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, that means He's going to convict us when we are living in sin. But the problem is this. Sometimes we get to the point where we have pushed down in the convicting of the Holy Spirit so often that we've actually seared our conscience and it no longer bothers us. And that's when we get to the conclusion, it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. God wants us to deal with sin. That's part of the reason he sent his son here to help us with that. I was thinking about this this week. Whom God loves, he chastens. Whom God loves, he rebukes. He convicts of their sinfulness, of their actions of their sinfulness. I was thinking about this. Consider this. If I'm walking down the mall and I observe a child somewhere over in another store misbehaving, uh, do you think I would pull those folks aside and proceed to discipline that child? 
I might want to. I might think it's necessary. But most likely, I would never pull aside somebody that I do not know who has a child who is misbehaving and being rebellious to rebuke them and chasten them and discipline them, right? Why? They're not mine. I might think they need it. I might think they deserve it. I might think the parents should deal with it. But I'm not going to deal with their children. They're not mine. But if I'm in the same place and it's my child, guess what's going to happen and what, what did happen as a, as a parent when my kids were little? In the middle of Walmart, one of them starts acting up. Guess what we did? We left the cart, went outside and dealt with it out in the car. I think some parents need to learn that. Kids don't rule the roost. But here's the deal. God says, if you're my child, I will rebuke you. And I will chastise you. Why does he do it? Because he just is angry? There are places in Scripture where God is angered by sin. But is that the purpose in the Hebrews 12? Is because God is just so mad, he's so upset, that he's just going to give it to me. No. He does it because he loves us. He does it because he wants to correct us. He does it so that we will not continue in that, that pattern of sinfulness in our life. So, that re, so the relationship can be restored so that we can walk in fellowship once again with him. Here's the question I have to ask. If you're living in sin right now, and you have patterns of sinfulness in your life, and you don't feel the rebuke, you don't feel the chastise, the Holy Spirit's not convicting you, you have to ask the question of whether or not you're really his child. That's harsh. But that's truth. Because whom God loves, he chastens. But he says, if you're really his child, you'll not, rebuke, you'll, you'll not rebuttal that. You'll say, thank you. Because it corrects us. And helps restore the fellowship that he wants with us. Back in the book of Proverbs, there's several verses there, and I won't take the time to go through all of them, but in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, it says this, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. So Jesus is saying this, I love my children. But I love them enough not to let them keep going the direction that they're going because I know where it's going to end up. God's word tells us, in Psalm 16 I believe it is, there's a way that seems right unto a man and the end thereof are the ways of death. Man left alone in his folly will end up in death separated from God. So we have to come to the conclusion that sin is not a good thing. It's not a light thing. It's not a trivial thing. It's something that we have to deal with. Does the Word of God teach us how we can be overcomers? It absolutely does. How we can live a life of victory? Absolutely. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 119. Psalm 119. I'm going to look at two verses here. I'm going to look at them out of order. But Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist here is saying, Your word, God, your word I have hidden. In other words, he is making a choice. It is an active thing that he is putting God's word in his life so that he can walk a life of victory. He says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin. And then going to verse 9, he says this. 
how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. So it is not just a hiding of God's word and putting God's word in our life. It's applying it and knowing what to do with that word and letting the word of God direct us. And, you know, I think there's several examples of this in Scripture. In fact, I found at least four, and I know there are others. But let me give you just four of them. In Psalm chapter 101, verse 3, it says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eye. David had made a commitment in his heart. He says, I'm not going to do this. No matter what comes up, I will set no wicked thing before my eye. That's a decision that many of us ought to make. So that we don't allow sinfulness to become a pattern in our life. I will set no wicked thing before mine eye. Joseph said it in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my God? He had an idea that if God views this thing as bad, if God views this thing as wickedness, I don't want any part of it. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against my Father? I wonder if we have that view. We say, Pastor, it's just a little thing. It's just a little fib. It was just a little white lie. It was just a little bit of an exaggeration. I mean, every, I mean everybody who knows me knows me. I'm, not, I'm really a better person than that. We can justify it. We can rationalize it. We can excuse it away. But the bottom line is, I wonder if we view sin as God views sin. That we would actually come to the same conclusion that Joseph did. How can I do this great wickedness, even though no one else may know about it? There's still one who does. Think about that. Daniel said in Daniel 1.8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Daniel came to the place, he said, I don't care what anyone else is doing. I'm not going to do it. I wonder if we have that kind of a staunch conviction against sin in our lives. Because sin breaks the heart of God. Sin separates our fellowship from with God. Job said it in 122, In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job says, no matter what happens, I'm going to believe that God has orchestrated it. God has allowed it. God is a sovereign God who can do whatever he wants. And the bottom line is, I'm not going to charge God with doing anything wrong. See, all these examples are, are examples of people who made up their mind that I don't want sin to dominate my life. And there are numerous other examples as well. But I wonder if we have that same idea, that same conviction, that same urgency that I don't want this in my life. Whether it's big or small, it doesn't matter. Whether I think someone else knows about it or not, it doesn't matter because there is one who always does. Hebrews chapter 4, I believe it is, says, All things are naked and open before God with whom we have to do. What's he saying there? There's nothing I can do to hide it from the, the presence of God. Nothing. I can hide it from my wife. I can hide it from my children. I can hide it from my coworkers. I can hide it from my neighbors. I can hide it from my relatives. But you can't hide it from God. Psalm 139 says, No matter where I go on this earth, I am there. You cannot escape the presence of God. At some point, we have to make up our minds that we're going to live for the glory of God rather than for ourselves. And that means we have to deal with sin. We have to choose who we're going to live for, God or self. Someone once put it in the form of a quote, which was later made into a song, only two choices on the shelf, living for God or pleasing self. What's our decision? So 
We know that the Word of God teaches us how we can overcome. We do it by the help of the Holy Spirit living within us. We do it by the Word of God that we're hiding in our hearts and applying as we live day by day. But how do we deal with the sin in our lives? I think God's Word gives us several good examples. In fact, you're in the book of Psalms. Turn back to chapter 38. Psalm chapter 38. And we see this example from David who was not a perfect man. But I love David because he was a man after God's own heart. And I believe he was a man after God's own heart for one main reason. When confronted with his sin, he acknowledged it. And in Psalm chapter 38 and verse 18, it says this. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. He says, I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to deny it. I'm not going to say I didn't do it. He said, I'll declare it. He confessed it. And in Psalm chapter 32 and verse 5, said, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. How many of you know what that word Selah means there? It means to stop, to pause, and think about it. Just think about that for a moment. He says, I am not going to hide my sin. Truth is, he couldn't. Truth is, none of us can. He says, I'm going to acknowledge it. And then he says, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. He says, I'm going to think about that for it. Let that settle in just for a moment. You know, I think there's a lot of us in this room this morning and around the world as people who claim to know Jesus Christ. There are times in our lives where we say, well, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. And I have to wonder sometimes, are we sorry or are we sorry we got caught? Because to confess it means I'm going to repent of it. I'm going this direction and I'm walking along and all of a sudden I'm confronted with the fact that what I'm doing is sinful. It's wrong. It's breaking the heart of God. And now I'm not only just going to say, yeah, that's what it is. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I know this breaks your heart. Would you please forgive me and give me the strength to overcome? And we turn our back on it and begin to go a new direction. I'm putting this behind me. That's the idea of confessing. It's one, of the, it's one thing to say, yeah, I did it. And? So? But it's another thing to say, I confess it. And I repent of it. In 2 Samuel chapter... Uh, 12, verses 13 and 14. You know the situation where, where David was sin in sin. So, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The bottom line is, he says, I have sinned. David knew what he deserved. But God showed mercy on him. And that's what I'm thankful for. I am so thankful that God is a God of second and third and fourth and two hundredth and seven thousandth chances at forgiveness. Because I know that I'm a sinner. Paul can say in his word that I am chiefest among sinners. And that may be true, it may be not be true, but I think all of us, if we realize how holy God is and how righteous God is and how sinful we are, we'd have the same conclusion. 
God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But God does not want you to stay in that sinfulness. God does not want you to live there. He wants you to walk in victory. In Numbers uh, chapter 22, you see another example how we deal with sin in our lives. Numbers chapter 22 and verse 34. You see the example with Balaam. Verse 34, he says, And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. So it's not just the idea, oh yeah, I did it. He says, I have sinned. And now that I know that it displeases you, I'm turning away from it. I'm not going to continue in it. Think about that just for a moment. What is the sin that you're holding on to? The thing in your mind that's not that big a deal. Well, I know it's not right. I know I probably shouldn't be there. I, I, is it a relationship? Is it an attitude? Is it a wrong characteristic in your life that shouldn't be there? Is it stealing? Is it lying? What is it? View it as God views it. And don't just say, well, yeah, I know it's there. Repent of it. Be sorrowful for it. And knowing that it displeases God, turn your back on it. Run from it. We see an example in the life of Peter in Luke chapter 5. You remember the story. I won't take the time, but the cock crowed and he says, man, I've sinned. I've sinned. I wonder when's the last time that we truly got on our hands and knees before God and said, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The sin shouldn't be in my life. Or have we just come to the conclusion it's not that big a deal? So I don't see God answering prayer. Oh, well. So I, it's not that bad. Eh, no big deal. Hmm. Or is it time that we start getting the same opinion of sin that God has? Let me give you another example of true repentance. Luke chapter 15. You know the story. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But in Luke chapter 15, you see the story of the prodigal son. I just want to read a few verses here. Beginning with verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with a prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. I mean, think about this. He is so destitute. He is so poor. He is so broke. He is down to nothing. And he said, I would have been glad to eat the junk, slosh, garbage, leftover table scraps that are being fed to the pigs. But he said, I don't even have that. He'd wasted his money on riotous living and sinful living. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have brought enough in despair, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, 
His father saw him, and he had compassion on him, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, and was lost and found, and they began to be merry. This is more than just a picture of a relationship being restored. This is really a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us through his death and burial, death and shed blood on the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, you were dead. Now you're alive. And what did he do? He restored the relationship. When we deal with sin in our life, and when we come to the conclusion that what we're doing is wrong, and we're willing to confess our sin and to forsake it and acknowledge it, God will restore the relationship that has been destroyed. What verse gives us indication that the prodigal came to the place of repentance? Verse 18, Father, I have sinned. And he says it again in verse 21, I have sinned. There's another thing I think needs to be present. Turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings, or 1 and 2 Kings, and then 1 and 2 Chronicles. 1 Kings, or I'm sorry, 2 Kings 22. Verses 19 and 20. You see, this is an example of King Josiah. Verse 19 says, Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spake against this place and against its inhabitants, and they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. I think there's two things there that need to be in the heart of a person who's willing to deal with their sinfulness. A tender heart and humility. I think those are things that are just lost in our culture. For whatever reason. We've so pushed up our being healthy, our self-esteem, and being proud of who we are, and and how we're built, and how we think, and it's all about us, and who we are. Humility has gone right out the window. And self-esteem, and being proud, and as Mark Lowry says, it may not be right, but never in doubt, has pushed down humility. And has made it so that we are now the dictators of our life. He says, I see your tender heart. I see your humility. And because of it, I'll not allow you to see the judgment that they're going to see. God spared him. God blessed him because he's willing to deal with it. In Ezra chapter 10, we'll not take the time to go there, but we see another picture of repentance and basically in verses 1 through 5, they acknowledge their sinfulness. And God says, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. When we are truly repentant, we don't mind the accountability because we know it's for our good. That's Hebrews 12. We don't mind that God is saying, I'm watching you. I have your best interest in heart, at heart. What does God promise to those who truly repent? 
Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 55. And I'll look at verse 7. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And what is the result of that turning back to the Lord? He says, I'll have mercy. I'll have mercy. Isn't that awesome? They, you've heard me say it before, but it's just it never will forsake my mind. Vance Havner, old country preacher, said, if God judged sin today the way he did in the days of Ananias and Sapphira, every church would need a morgue in its basement. Aren't you thankful that God is gracious, and that he's merciful, that he's patient, that he's long-suffering, that he doesn't immediately judge us right when we do something wrong? He has the right to. He has the ability to. But he doesn't. He says, when the righteous come to me, I'll have mercy on them. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him to our God. And he will abundantly, what's the next word? Pardon. Isn't that awesome? He says, when you repent of your sins, I won't hold that against you. Why? He says, I love you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Isn't that a gracious promise? He doesn't have to. No one's forcing him to. But he loves us enough that he says, I'm willing to forsake. I'm willing to pardon. I'm willing to allow you a fresh start. Here's the deal. Until mankind accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they cannot live an overcoming life as they ought. Why is that? Because you don't have the Holy Spirit living within you, giving you the ability to overcome. The only way for all of us to truly be able to have victory in our lives is to be a child of God. To have a relationship with Him. To know that He's your Savior. To know that He's your Father and you're His child. And here's the Word of God. It says if you're not feeling that chastening, if you're not feeling the convicting of the Holy Spirit when you do wrong, and if there's these sinful patterns of junk in your life and you just can't seem to overcome, even though you might think it's not the best and maybe I should quit doing that, but you're just not getting victory, we have to wonder whether or not you're truly God's child. Because if you are, God says you have victory at your disposal. Do we have the same view of sin as Jesus has? The same view of sin that shed, that his blood was shed on the cross of Calvary for However, once mankind does accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, they ought to be walking in victory and obedience to God in righteousness. Remember, Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven to sacrifice his life and shed his blood that we might have victory over sin. And we must not keep as a pattern a lifestyle of sin in our life. One more passage in Romans chapter 6, if you would turn there. Romans chapter 6. It 
I'm going to read the first six verses and then a few scattered verses after this. Verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's he saying here? He says, Oh, I know there's sin in my life, but you know what? God's going to forgive me. All I have to do when, I, when I'm in sin, all I have to do is say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and God's going to forgive me, and yeah, I can just keep doing what I want. I mean, it's just like, you know, just go to confession, you know, say, Hey, God, I did this. Oh, well, you're forgiven. No worries. No big deal. Not, 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 not an issue. Just let it go. No. Should we continue in sin just because God's going to be gracious? Look at verse 2. Certainly not. In fact, some of your translations say, God forbid that we have that mindset. God forbid that I would have the idea that I can continue in sin just because I know that God's going to forgive me. Certainly not, he says. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in likeness of his death, certainly we also should be in likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be, not be, not, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. What's he saying here? says, when you made a commitment to give your life to Christ, when you acknowledge your sinfulness and your dependency upon Him and put your faith and trust in Christ with Him, you crucified the old man. And as we stood before, the, before our, 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 our peers in, in the body of water in baptism, we formed a cross, right? We identified our life with Christ. And just as Christ did what? He went to the cross. He died. He went under. And then He didn't stay in the grave. He came back up. In other words, when we were baptized, we said publicly, we made a commitment before those around us that we are crucifying who we were before Christ came into our life. And as we came up out of the waters, we are said we are now risen a new person in Christ. Paul said this way, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says, I don't want you to see Saul that was the old man. I don't want you to think of him. He was a, he was a sinful man. I don't, want, I don't want anybody to know him. I want him to see me as Paul. In fact, I don't even really want him to see Paul. I want, to see, I want people to see Jesus in Paul. John the Baptist said it this way. I'm an image bearer. I'm not the light. I'm just one to, sent here to reflect the light. Don't see John. See Jesus. Why? Because the old man was crucified. And there's a new man risen. That's why we ought not to have patterns of sinfulness in our life any longer. If we truly know Jesus Christ, God says you have victory over sin. That's been crucified. You now have the Holy Spirit living within you, giving you the strength that you need. Look at verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. He says, listen, that's old. That's done away with. It's no longer... Death reigned, but no longer. And then verse 15, he says, But if 
but the free gift is not like the offense for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God, the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one Jesus Christ. He says, by one man, sin entered into the world. But much more, by one man's offering, grace has been bestowed upon all. You have the ability to walk in victory because of what Jesus Christ has done. There is no greater gift. And if you're here today, once again, kind of wrapping this all up together, you have patterns of sinfulness in your life. You have sin that you've chosen to disregard and you're not dealing with it. You don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit when you're doing those things. It could be that you truly need Jesus Christ in your life. Maybe for the first time you say, well, that makes sense because I've just been walking in sinfulness and I just can't seem to get victory. Have you ever truly surrendered to Jesus Christ? You see, too many people look at salvation as a get-out-of-hell free card. It's not that. It's not just say the prayer and you're on your way. See, the life of Christ is a life of commitment. It's a relationship. Lots of people have said prayers and lives have not changed. People say prayers every day and it means nothing. It's a religious act. It's only when we truly come before Jesus Christ and say, God, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that. Your word reminds me of that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. God, I'm no exception. I'm a sinner. I confess that before you. And then B, we believe that Jesus Christ did exactly what he says he did. He died on the cross. But God demonstrated his love in this way. He sent his one and only son to shed his blood, to pay a price because I had a debt I couldn't pay. His blood covered my sin. And God, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And then see, I confess my sin before him. I confess who he is. And I call on him, Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I have no ability to save myself. Not an ounce of ability. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And daily it's a choice. Daily it's a choice. How do I know that? I've shared this before, but in Romans chapter 1, there's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says, now that you know me, walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And he goes on, says, for the law of the Spirit of life is in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And here's what he says, verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. As long as we wake up every day and choose not to deal with sin, 
you cannot please God because you can't live for both sides. You have to make a choice who you're going to live for. And the bottom line is that requires us to look at sin as God looks at sin. To view it as he views it. And to realize that my sinfulness breaks the heart of God and separates me from having fellowship with him as he desires. So I close with this thought this morning. Is there sin in your life that you're not dealing with? So it's not a big deal. It is to God. Is there sin that you say, well, it's just, hey, I I, I just, you know, it's been there for so long, it just, you know, it, it is what it is. And it's still breaking the heart of God and breaking fellowship with Him. Will you deal with it? Maybe today is the day that God's saying, hey, my grace is still sufficient. My mercy is still present. And if you confess it, I will forgive you and cleanse you and give you star over number 7,421 or 3,027. But it requires me to acknowledge it, to repent of it, to forsake it, and say, God, I cannot do this without you. That's what it's going to take. But as long as you're not unwilling to deal with it, or as long as you're unwilling to deal with it, you'll not have God's blessing. I close with this. Over the last 25 years of ministry, I've met numerous people with all kinds of addictions. Maybe it's eating. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. I don't know. Fill in the blank with whatever addiction you're familiar with. You know when that person begins to have victory over the addiction? It's true in every case. When they acknowledge it and say, I have to deal with it. Until you're willing to acknowledge it and you're willing to deal with it, nothing's going to change. As long as you, and I'll go one step further, love the addiction more than you love not being a part of it, you're not going to change. Walking in the Spirit requires me to love God more then I love living in the flesh. It's our choice. But God is a God of grace and mercy. And he wants us to walk in fellowship with him. It's your choice. This morning, are you willing to deal with sin in your life? I trust that you are. That's what God wants. He wants that fellowship restored. Let's pray.